My name's Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope Church. If we don't know each other, it's good to have you. Um, I wanted to, to mention again the, um, the night that's coming on January 30th. We're inviting people to come and uh, listen to different perspectives on the issue of uh, women's ordination to be elders. Um, wanted to address it specifically, personally, to invite you to know what we're doing. Um, I, was, I was speaking with um, a mother of a classmate of my daughter, Allie. She's a counselor. And uh, this was right before Christmas. I said, you know, you must be busy. Um, it's Christmas time. People are getting ready to go home. It's very stressful for people. And she said, actually, no. Um, with everything that's going on in our community, in our nation, politically, um, people are so angry with their family that they're just not dealing with it. They're not going home to talk to their family. So they don't need to come talk to me. So I'm not busy right now. And I was shocked that the environment that we live in has led to families just totally disassociating from each other. Families cannot speak to one another because they disagree so strongly about politics, which is important, but we're talking about family. And I was struck then... We are not like the world. And we, we know in our church that people care deeply about an important, important issue, like should women be elders in a church? But we are not going to be like the world, where we're just not going to talk to one another. That is not an option for this church, for the body of Christ. So on January 30th, we're inviting you to come and listen to one another. It's not a debate. There won't be a, a vote. Um, my assumption is no one will change their mind about anything. That's not the point for me. The point is that you understand somebody that you disagreed with. And even more deeply, the people who disagree with, the, with each other, even in this church, will see that most importantly, we are people who together love Jesus and care deeply about this because we love his word. Both, both sides of this issue are saying we cherish the word of God. We want to be ruled by it because Jesus rules his church. And that is actually what binds us together, that conviction, even when we disagree on important things. Does that make sense? So that's the spirit of what that night's going to be like. Um, to, to highlight as much our unity on very important, most important things rather than how we might disagree on this passage of Scripture or that passage of Scripture. So if you say, uh, I already know what I think, you should come anyway. If you say, I don't know what I should think, you should definitely come. We want to help you think through Scripture. That's part of what we do together. Um, and if you're in the position of saying, I don't know how anyone could think what those people think. Great. This is for you. Um, we want you to be here. Um, you don't have to come in with your fists up. It's not the point. Uh, come with your ears open, um, like they teach my kids in, in preschool. You know, mouth closed, ears open. Um, that's, that's what we'll be doing. Um, and we'll start to talk through this together as a family, hopefully better than the other families' that behavior that might be in the world today. Um, 
I appreciate you praying for me uh, this, and my family this past week, if you did. Um, I was away for class, and uh, I was very glad to be there. Um, I, I go to a, a small Anglican seminary called Trinity School for Ministry. Um, it's for evangelicals. Broadly, there's an EPC pastor that's a professor there. Um, because I'm in the doctorate of ministry program, I don't really know who I'm going to meet when I'm there. And I got to the room, and there was the professor and me and two other people uh, for five days for like eight hours at a time. It, as an introvert, I was deeply horrified <laughs> because I had to talk the whole time. When the classroom is bigger, you kind of, kind of check out for a few minutes can even walk out and go to the bathroom and maybe hang out outside for a little bit. Nobody cares, but it's me and one person on my left and one person on my right and the professors. A very intimate conversation for a long time, um, but I very much uh, enjoyed it. It was very refreshing. One lady is, uh, she's in her mid-60s. She's a priest in the Anglican Church in Colorado. Uh, she's coming from a very different place than me, and the man to my right is a professor at an Anglican college in Egypt. So he definitely got the longest travel sticker. Um, and I was amazed by this man. Because, you know, we have, we have to read all these books before we come. We have to be, write a paper, be ready to talk about it. He's, his first language is Arabic, not English. All the books are in English. So he's working through these books. He has told me his process to work through the books, to underline each word that he doesn't know, look it up, write a list of the words, and hopefully be able to track through. We're talking about evangelicalism and what it means to be an evangelical. And so the woman from Colorado and I are talking about how confusing that term is, what does it mean theologically, culturally, all these things, usually related to some sort of conservative theology and now blended with politics in, in this country. And we asked him, you know, what, what does it mean to be an evangelical in Egypt? And he was like, oh, evangelicals, they're the liberals in Egypt. Which is like, what? What is going on? This diff, totally wild conversation between three very different people. And I was very much blessed by that. My new friend, Atif, he's engaging in hours-long conversation by translating English to Arabic in his head. And if he can stay awake this whole time, you better stay awake for this whole sermon. You have no excuse, okay? None. That's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or I'm doing a really bad job, but I don't want to think about that. Um, we're in a series on the book of Revelation and um, just started. And um, as I was trying to plan this out, I, I knew that... The, the opening section of Revelation has within it seven letters to different churches. And I, I felt like we either were going to spend seven weeks in these three chapters or we're going to do it all in one. And I just said, let's go for it. Let's go one day for all of these seven letters. And uh, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. I, I hope you'll be able to follow with me as we look at these themes that run through them. I'm going to read this sort of introductory vision that, that John has, and then two of the letters, but I'll allude to the other letters and, and hopefully point to you where, where I'm doing that. So we're in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. 
I'll read to the end of chapter 1, and I'll read uh, one of the small letters from chapter 2, and I'll read the final letter that's in chapter 3. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, and on, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Th- Thyteria, Thyteria and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those things, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." We'll jump into chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And then in chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you're either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray for us. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the speaking God. Word made flesh, we pray that your word may penetrate our hearts, that we might be pierced by your sword, as you might free our hearts to love you more deeply and truly with faithfulness and passion that is merely a pale, dim reflection of your own. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. This, uh, this passage, this section of the letters, letters, letter, opens with John himself having a vision of Jesus. And it's interesting that John is experiencing this vision not first as a vision, but as something he hears. As you, if you noticed uh, as we were reading, he, he says that he hears behind him a voice like a trumpet saying, write these things down. And then he turns to see the voice. So John experiences this first as a word from somebody that he does not see. And it would be helpful for us to take comfort in the writings of our brother John to to know and understand that sometimes we hear the voice before we see the sight. For us, we are the people who are like John, who are hearing the voice before we see with our eyes. But then what he sees is Jesus in this glorified and magnified state. And he has this description of Jesus from head to toe, and he's really shiny. He's he's burning, and he's gold, and he's glittering with power. And his eyes are aflame. And his mouth has this uh, likeness to a sword, a sword that comes out of his mouth. Not to be understood I hope you understand that when we see Jesus with our eyes, it's not like we'll have to duck to make sure the sword doesn't like fling out and chop our heads off. John is speaking with imagery and metaphor to show us what Jesus is about to do, that he is about to speak a sharp word to his churches. And he has in his hand these seven stars amidst these seven lampstands. And I mentioned last time that this book, the book of Revelation, is drenched and soaked in Old Testament imagery. And a lot of things here are cueing us to see Jesus as a kind of priestly figure. The lampstands itself themselves are one of the biggest hints, the clues for us. Because in Israel, the lampstand uh, is a a seven-winged figure in the tabernacle and in the temple and the inner court. And here, instead of being one uh, menorah, the lampstand has been split apart and put to seven individual lampstands, possibly showing us that just as the churches have spread around Uh, throughout the world that we're about to see, these churches in Asia Minor. So the light of God's revelation has similarly moved out from the temple and has been placed in different places in the world. And Jesus says that He has in His right hand these stars. He has these angels of the churches. And John, when he sees this, has an entirely appropriate reaction. He freaks out. He falls down. He, he passes out in some sense. He falls down like a dead person is what happens. 
And the same hand that holds these seven stars. It's, John is clear to say that Jesus holds the stars with his right hand. And with his right hand, he reaches and he touches John. And he says, stand up. I have a message for you to give. Jesus will continually refer to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. The one who has conquered death. And in John's response and Jesus' consolation, commentators will point out, we have an indication of this ministry of Jesus. Because John falls down like a dead one, but is raised to life by the one who holds the church in his hand. And the one who holds the church in his hand is clearly communicating comfort and holding his life just as he holds all the life of the churches. And he has a word for John as the Alpha and the Omega. These churches that are mentioned, seven real cities in Asia Minor. Uh, one commentator says it, it's significant, he thinks, that these churches are between Rome and Jerusalem. They're not, they're not in old Israel. They're not in the empire. They are between the spaces. And in a lot of ways, both pressure from Jerusalem and Rome converge on Asia Minor, where these churches are. Modern-day Turkey, they form this sort of ring of travel between the two places. And these are real places with real churches and real congregations. And Jesus has a message for each of them. And none of them, you'll notice, are privately sealed. So what, what Jesus says to Pergamum, Ephesus is going to know. And what Jesus says to Smyrna, Laodicea will also know. There's a, a sort of openness to their mail that they're being delivered. Now, Jesus tells John to address these to, the, to what our translation calls the angels of these churches. And if you read them as angels instead of messengers, which is what the word literally is, it gets weird because you wouldn't think of angels needing to repent or to watch out for these things. But God sends people, sends messengers to these churches who lead these churches. Whether or not you think they're angels or messengers that are people, God intends this message to be given to the whole church that's there in that city. And we read a couple of these, Smyrna and Laodicea. There are five letters that uh, warn of judgment and two where Jesus pretty much says, everything is going great, keep going. But five out of the seven include a warning about what is going on. We read, we read the one to Smyrna. And uh, it's actually, as a side note, it's fitting for us to read this letter in the season of the church that we're in. We're in Epiphany. Um, Epiphany uh, remembers that when God revealed himself to the Gentiles, we, we use the story of the three wise men to think about that. Um, you remember what the three wise men brought? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That word myrrh is the same as Smyrna. The, the wise men brought Smyrna to Jesus. It is this, uh, it's this fragrant spice often used for embalming. And that's important because what Jesus tells them is they themselves are going to be a people who have, may have need of myrrh. They are people who are in trouble. They are pressed down and persecuted in poverty, it seems. And they should be ready. They should be wary because things are not about to get better. They're about to get worse. But he encourages them to endure. 
The message to Laodicea is a bit different. They're not poor people who Jesus is encouraging to endure. They are rich. In fact, they, they say that everything is going great with them. He says in chapter, I mean, chapter 3, verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. But the message to them is, actually, it's the opposite. You don't really know yourselves very well. You're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you're shameful. Things are not going well. All of these letters will continue along these lines, have these elements. Jesus will introduce himself in the the letter to Smyrna. He says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And the letter that follows to Pergamum, he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, which we just heard because we knew that in John's vision. The following letter says, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Bronze. Each church receives a piece of, uh, of confirmation of who Jesus is based on the vision that John sees. It starts with this description of Jesus. It, it, des- it describes their situation and provides for them uh, an encouragement to endure and to keep going, to be faithful. In each of these churches, especially the five ones, there is a diagnostic that they should be careful of particular things. And broadly, the things that they should be concerned with are issues of unfaithfulness. They speak of sexual immorality. They speak of false teaching. And they speak of uh, an overboundedness to money. And these themes will pop up in, in these churches throughout. John will use Old Testament references like figures like Jezebel. If you know who Jezebel is, she was this evil queen who uh, incited Israel to follow false gods. He'll use the story of Balaam. I don't know if you remember Balaam. Balaam's a weird story in the book of Numbers. He has a conversation with his donkey. That's normally how people remember who Balaam is. Uh, Balaam's story ends with him uh, bringing disaster to Israel by tempting them to worship other gods and get involved in sexual immorality. So sexual immorality, false teaching, and an obsession with wealth. Now, as we read these letters in our context, those things should set off some alarm bells for us. We, we don't believe these letters were written to us, but they were written for us. And we live in a place and a time, a situation, and a setting where those three things particularly have real bearing on us in our context in Western North Carolina and 21st century United States of America. Now, These are things that people outside the church know that church people tend to harp on. Why do you all talk so much about sex and money and doctrine? You're obsessed with them to an unhealthy degree. Why is it such a big deal? Why do you focus on the biblical idea of sexual faithfulness? Why do you focus so much on money? Why do you focus so much on what you believe and believing the right thing. And all three of these things are are interlocked. But at first, it should be acknowledged even by people who are not Christian and who are annoyed by the way that Christians talk about these things, that these things are important to everyone. 
In our culture, you cannot say, well, it's just the Christians who are focused on sex and money and teaching. Our whole culture is immersed in that. The problem is not that we think that those things are important. It's that we don't think they're important in the way that you do. Everybody is invested in these things because they are important. Jesus will talk about the usage of your money illuminating the state of your heart. I happen to think that Jesus is a pretty good teacher, and that seems to be a very accurate point. If we go through my expenditures, they will reveal to you the places that I show care for things in the world. And usually, you'll see that I care about books. I care about eating good food. And it's quite possible that you can look at the way that I spend my money and on those things, the way I don't spend money on these things, and you might say, it looks like you care more about that than this. And what's troubling is I have to say, you may be right. Please stop looking at my bank statements. <laughs> we, we all do this. Whether, whether you agree with a Christian approach to finances or, or sex or teaching, we all care. The Bible will, will focus often on sexual sin, not because sexual sin is dirtier or more gross or more significant than the sins of money. It should be said, Jesus talks a lot about money, way more than he talks about sex, which as Americans should trouble us. But Paul will say, your sins of sexuality do something deep in your body and your soul that can be deeply destructive. What you unite yourself to is powerful, and you should be careful. And ultimately, what the church will repeatedly say is, God wants you to be free and to be happy. And you may not have the best idea of what it means to be free and to be happy, but God is your creator, and He doesn't leave you in the dark about these things. He wants you to know so that you will be people who are free and who are happy in Him the way that you are made to be. Ultimately, these things, money and sex and teaching that tickles our ears and often reinforces what we want to believe rather than what we should believe, these things are dangerous for the churches of Revelation in these seven letters because they lead people away from who God wants them to be. What He wants them to be is a bride who is faithful to Him as He is faithful to them. He wants His people to be a faithful people. And these areas that can dominate our lives are areas where our affections are easily prone to being grabbed and led in some other direction. And we live in a time where our culture spends a lot of focus, energy, and investment on making sure you believe the right things about the world. Our, our culture polices false teaching. We live in an environment where if you do not believe cultural orthodoxy about this thing or that thing, you'll get canceled. 
You will get written off the map. Why? Because false teaching matters, and the culture wants you to believe properly. If you would build boundaries around sexual behavior that's different from what the culture would do, the culture will police you doing that. Why? Because things are important, and we want the orthodoxy to be maintained. If you do not invest your money in the right things, if you do not bow at the altars of consumerism, of self-ratification, of self-comfort, then the culture will bombard you until you relent. Sex, money, and teaching are not things that were weird and important back then. They are important to all of us because we are human. And Jesus, in these letters, presents the danger to His church. And He doesn't come to them as the God who is pulling the sword out of His mouth and walloping everybody, just angry at everyone. He's telling them, you are in danger. There's real danger if you don't pay attention to the things that master you. And what Jesus wants for His people, because He loves them, is for them to not be mastered by these other gods. Because ultimately what Jesus repeatedly says in these letters is, He is coming to judge these things. He is coming to judge these things that inappropriately oppress, undermine, mar, and destroy His creation. And you do not want to be in bed with these things. He doesn't want His people to fall under the sword of judgment. This is not, not Jesus who we might imagine as the angry Puritan. By the way, they weren't all angry, but whatever. He's not the one who delights in bringing people under the sword. This is Jesus, the Lord of the church, who is using his sword like a scalpel to cut out that which endangers their hearts so they can be free. These are letters of love from a bridegroom. And John has clued us into that fact by using imagery from the book of Song of Songs in this and in the rest of the book. The predominant move of the whole narrative of the book of Revelation is that everything is moving to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm going to read uh, Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse 10. This book you may be unfamiliar with. You may not read the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, whatever you want to call it, very often. It's a, it's a series of love poems between bride and bridegroom and the bride's friends. And it's an exaltation of romantic love that's beautiful and wonderful. But listen to the way the bride describes the bridegroom in Song of Solomon 5. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousands. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like dove, besides streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like the beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. 
His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. You see how she describes the bridegroom from the top down and focuses on the same things that John has drawn our eyes to about the bridegroom of the church. Focusing on the way that this bridegroom, his hair is not dark like the ravens, it is white like snow. And he, just like the bridegroom in Song of Songs 5, is radiant with gold. And just like the bridegroom in Song of Songs 5, it is his legs that are burnishing like bronze, set in metal, gleaming with his own particular shine and glory. It is this kind of romantic imagery that John uses on purpose. It is the bridegroom whose eyes are gleaming with love for his bride, who directs his eyes at his bride and points out to them the places where they are in danger from missing out on what is the narrative of Revelation and the narrative Song of Songs. They might miss the wedding day where the bridegroom wants them to be, is desperate for them to be, longs for them to be seated at His place at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In our final letter to the church in Laodicea, He tells them to be careful. He tells them to watch themselves and to dress themselves appropriately. What he says is they're naked and they're meant to be enrobed with the robes that he offers and to buy what they cannot buy. He tells them, you are poor, you are naked, and he tells them to buy gold and he tells them to clothe themselves. Why would he tell poor people to buy what they cannot buy? Because these are the gifts of the bridegroom for the bride to robe herself in. You cannot buy the gold that Jesus is telling Laodicea to buy. They are gifts from his own storehouse. You cannot weave your own robes. The robes are gifts from his own storehouse. He says to them, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Song of Solomon 5, verse 2, the bride says, I slept. But my heart was awake, a sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. The bridegroom stands at the door of the church and knocks as the eager bridegroom of his bride, the church.
And what he wants from Laodicea, what he wants from all of the churches in these seven letters, is that you would greet him with eagerness. The love that he says has grown cold in Laodicea is, it's not, it's not hot or cold, it's lukewarm. And in this day and time, wine that is served as welcome is either served as hot or as cold. Refreshment for the long traveler. The banquet being set for the visitor. And Jesus tells them, your love is neither hot nor cold. Because you don't really welcome me. But he wants them at his supper. Our, our, our job, our call this morning, is to hear the great bridegroom of the church knocking on the door. He is the one who has come to us. And we are called to realize that we can easily be led astray. We live in a world that is pushing its own kind of orthodoxy and teaching on us all the time, as human culture has always done and will always do. John Calvin says our hearts are idle factories. And the factory of idolatry will keep on running as long as humans keep on breathing. Do not be deceived. Your affections are going somewhere. And the bridegroom stands in front of you to say, I want your affections. I want your affections. I don't just want your obedience. I don't want moral conformity. I don't need you to weave the garments for yourself, to, to gather your own riches and bargain with me. I want you to buy from me gold that you could not find elsewhere, salve for your eyes so that you can truly see. I want you to wear the robes that I will give you so that you will be my bride and I will be your bridegroom. And what is the ultimate position that Jesus says at the end of Revelation chapter 3? So that you would be seated with me on my throne. So that you, my bride, can be home with me in safety and in security and in great joy forever. The bridegroom of the church is here today. He's here. His voice is still the voice that moves like rushing waters. And though we have not seen him with our eyes, we hear his voice this morning. And if you know that you are somebody who has been captive to these things, to sexual immorality, to bad teaching, to money, to comfort, to any kind of thing, your bridegroom is in the midst today to tell you that he comes with a sword to cut chains off of you, to free you from sin so that you might be faithful and true because he is faithful and true. He calls himself the first and the last because he is the one who accomplishes this great miracle for his people. He calls himself the Lord of creation because he will create in you what you could not create for yourself. He is the Lord who is Lord over death. That if you collapse in front of him in shame and in terror and in hopelessness, it is his right hand that will lift you up. 
Because he is the one who has altered the story. Now death is not the end of the story. It is merely the beginning. So if you fall down dead before Jesus this morning in hopelessness, the hand of God is coming near you that you might rise in hope and freedom and liberation that your heart may be set on fire as His own eyes have burned for His church. If you are entrenched in sin this morning, You've been seen. He loves you. He loves you. If your sin is secret and so dark and you are so captive, He has seen you and He loves you and He is knocking at your door. If you have felt your heart grow cold and you are not sure that the banquet table is set and welcome for Jesus because all these things have started to steal away your affections, Jesus has sent these letters for you because He wants you to see Him and to remember that you were made for Him and it has always been about Him. Do not be deceived and let Jesus get put in the corner of the room of your mind as if He is a piece of furniture that completes the room. He is the one that stands in the midst of the heavenly temple with your destiny in His hand and His eyes burn with love for you and you were made for Him. We are called this morning as every church for all of time has been called to see Jesus. Do you hear him knocking on the door this morning? I'd say to you the same thing that Paul says to the church. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his knock, do not harden your heart. If you have been sitting and wondering, when might God come and speak to me today? If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but open the door, invite him in, and he will eat with you now and forever. The great bride that he has won at great cost to himself because he loves you. And spent himself for your freedom and your happiness in him forever. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you that we are your people. That that we don't get to be your people because of our own goodness. We don't get to be your people because we do all the right things. We are your people because you made us your people. You rescued us and delivered us. And you call us to faithfulness in response to your overwhelming faithful love. And Father, I pray for everyone in this room 
who as I was speaking was thinking of this thing or that thing that has ensnared them and encircled them, enslaved them to sin, and I pray God that You would speak to them clearly that even over that thing, You are Lord and Master, and it would deliver them. Even in their deep, deep poverty, You would give them gold they cannot buy. You will enrobe them in Your own robes. Father, I pray that we would freely respond to You in repentance. That we would freely confess to You the things that we have set our hearts on. The sin that so easily entangles us. That we would not listen anymore to the voice of shame and condemnation that keeps us from running towards You, but instead we would bring You all of our mess. And we would say, we just want to be Yours now. Father, for anyone who is here who has never responded to You before, God, I pray that You will enable them to open their hands to You and express complete surrender and trust that Your work is enough. And for all of us who have already cast ourselves in Your direction, I pray that we would take heart That we would not labor under the heavy load of sin. And Father, I pray for those whose hearts feel cold. That they would feel encouraged that how they feel day to day is not what determines their place. But it is your work. And that calls them to a deep kind of love and commitment. But also, God, I pray that you'd bless them. And move in their hearts, they would be stirred by your grace. You are the great Lord of the church, the bridegroom who surely comes for his bride. Let us respond to you, Lord Jesus, with wholeheartedness and live for you with delight and joy with every breath that we have. We thank you that you are worthy of that, Lord God. Unless you call us into that life. Amen.